Okay, well, uh, again, good morning. If you have a Bible, please do uh, turn to the book of Jonah, uh, to which your response to hearing turn to the book of Jonah, it, it might be, wait, what? What, huh? We're, we're still in the book of Jonah? Didn't we finish the story last week? Aren't we done with it? Aren't we this morning moving on to uh, onto the next sermon series? And if you're thinking that, I totally get why. Because uh, if, if you learned in school, like me in an English class, you will have learned that stories, good stories at least, have a distinctive beginning, they have a middle, and they have an end. That's what all good stories have. Uh, when we read stories, when we watch films, that's what we see. And as we've gone through the book of Jonah, we've gone through every stage of that classical three-act structure that, that you know, that we, we've seen that in Jonah. I mean, just take act one. What happens in act one of a story? Well, in act one, the stakes are set and the adventure begins. That's what happens. So in, in the book of Jonah, God comes to his prophet, Jonah, and says, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to the, the evil city full of wicked people, and I want you to give them a message. And essentially, the message is this, Jonah, tell the Ninevites, repent, turn away from your sin. If you don't, then I will destroy you. But if you do, then I will forgive you and you will experience mercy. Okay, so that's, those are the high, these are high stakes. But Jonah, he gets up and he turns around and he runs in the opposite direction. And so the adventure begins in Act 1. The, the story of Jonah asks us at the beginning, will, will Jonah succeed in escaping God? Will the Ninevites end up being destroyed? What about Act 2 of a story? Well, in, in Act 2, there's always this kind of turning point, isn't there? And in Jonah, there's quite a literal turning point. Jonah is running in the opposite direction away from God, but God sends a storm and he appoints a fish to literally turn Jonah around and even to turn his spirit, to turn his soul around, turn him back to God. And at the end of uh, Chapter 2, of Act 2, if you like, the, the fish vomits Jonah out onto the beach. And then you have Act 3. Well, Act 3, we all know what happens there. This is the conclusion. This is the, the happy ending of a story where every plot thread is just neatly tied together, and it's all nice, and it's all very satisfying. Jonah, he preaches this message that God sent him to preach, and the Ninevites, surprisingly, they respond really well. They turn away from their sin, and God forgives them and washes away their, their sin. Hooray! That's it. That's the, that's the satisfying, happy ending, right? And because you and I have been raised on inspirational Hollywood films, we can picture the scene. We imagine Jonah leaving Nineveh after a hard day's preaching, and he pauses, and he turns back, and he, he surveys the city full of these evil, wicked Ninevites, or once, they were once evil and wicked, because they're now repentant. And he sees the beauty of the work, or this miracle of salvation that God has done. He recognizes also he, he has been the recipient of the same grace. And as he sees this scene in a stoic, leading man fashion, a, a single tear 
rolls down Jonah's face as the orchestral music kicks in and does its thing. And Jonah nods a little, turns away and walks off into the sunset. Fade to black. The end. Stuff of Oscar nominations right there. And And then the credits roll, right? Screenplay by God. Fish as himself. And so to find out that actually, last week, we didn't just shut the book with a nice satisfying thud. Actually, there's an unexpected, wait, there's an unexpected act four. What is this? Some sort of epilogue? Some sort of where are they now type montage? What is it that we're about to read? And the best way, of course, to answer that question is just to read it. So let's do that. But what we're about to read in Jonah chapter 4, the first four verses, it really does mess with our idea, our understanding of this as the nicely structured linear story. So let's read together the first four verses of Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So I I totally agree with you. If you're thinking this story should be over by now, I think it should be over. But Jonah, we see, is not in a good way, is he? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. After all God's done for for the Ninevites and for Jonah himself, we find that instead of that single tear of thankfulness rolling down Jonah's face, if there are tears, then they are angry and they are bitter. How surprising and, and, and yeah, embarrassing. I mean, this is a prophet of God. You might be here this morning. You might not be... A, a Christian who may, might be checking church out, but you're probably thinking if a prophet of God were to witness an incredible miracle that God does, the appropriate response would be surely worship, a, a, a thankful heart. That's not what we see with, with Jonah, do we? Instead, we, we just see this man with this kind of petulant fury. Why, why does Jonah feel like this? Well, this is what it says, right? He, he explains himself. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Right? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Wow. Jo- Jonah is essentially saying, I knew you were like this. This is exactly 
something you would do to take the most evil people and the most wicked people, the people most deserving of punishment and crushing and judgment, and what are you, you forgive them of everything. This is exactly like something you would do. That's what Jonah is saying. And if you've been wondering from the, from the beginning of the series, why why Jonah ran away in the first place, we, we hear from Jonah's lips, why? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful. From, from the very beginning, Jonah is suspicious. He's wondering, I, I think there's a slight possibility, if there's a slight possibility that Ninevites are going to be saved, cool, I think they're probably going to be saved. Jonah was suspicious that God could be this kind, that he could forgive the worst of humanity. And in this instance, oh, it is not what Jonah wants at all. Because this Assyrian empire, the capital of which is Nineveh, I mean, these are the people who have been destroying and decimating and killing and enslaving his countrymen, his people. And this, to Jonah, this is the unforgivable sin. And by the end of, of the story, I mean, at this point, when we, we see Jonah angry, all, all his suspicions have been proved absolutely and totally correct. And he is incensed. He saw this coming from a mile away, and it still does not feel good. You know, one thing I'm struck by in, in all of this is that Jonah really does know God. Like, his theology is so good. You know what I mean by that? Like, his understanding of who God is and what God is like and the sort of things that God would do, he just, Jonah is spot on. And when he prays this prayer full of anger and fury, you know, it's full of anger and fury, but he directly quotes Exodus 34, verse 6, which is this particularly important bit of history for, for the followers of God, where God reveals who he is to Moses. And it's a moment that goes like this. It says, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, it's glorious. We read this and go, that is wonderful. That is so good to, to know. This is who God says he is to Moses. And Jonah knows this. And Jonah knows this to a, to a degree that it goes beyond just a, a nice little memory verse in his head. He believes it. In fact, he doesn't just believe it. He has this deep conviction that it is true. Hence, Jonah getting up and fleeing from God's presence and running to Tarshish. And there's something that, to me, for me, is very bothersome about Jonah. Because I see myself in him quite a lot. I mean, Jonah knows the Bible. And, and I, I know the Bible, but Jonah, prophet of God, knew the scriptures such as they were back then better than, than I do. I mean, we listen to how Jonah Praise here. I mean, Exodus 34 just rolls off his tongue. Most of his prayers just, oh, Bible, truth. 
And in the fish, what happens? Well, Jonah experiences the forgiveness of God, the, the, the mercy towards his rebellious dereliction of duty. And that's me too, right? I look at Jonah, I go, I have just the same rebelliousness. I have just the same tendency to run in the opposite direction, the same hard-heartedness. And I too have also tasted of the grace of God, kindness, that he would deal with me not with punishment, but with mercy and with steadfast love. Jonah, in chapter 2, prays uh, prays this prayer, doesn't he, of thanksgiving for all that God has done for him. And when I think of how God has been so kind and good to me, I pray prayers of thanksgiving like this. Jonah eventually obeys God and does what he's told. You know, for for the Christians in, in the room, are you kind of feeling this with me? Maybe you see a lot... For either the best Christian in the room, maybe you, you see a lot of yourself in Jonah. I know I do. In previous weeks, we've, we've talked a lot about Jonah's failings, you know, his running away, his not turning to God, even as we've seen in, in Jonah chapter 4, his, his racial prejudices. And for, for all that, though, he gets, doesn't he? He gets a lot of things right. Jonah does know God. And yet, yet, despite all his Bible knowledge and his ability to pray with Scripture and with honesty, perhaps more honesty than some of us pray, he still has a heart that just is not right with God, that was angry with him. He had received God's mercy. But when it came to those people over there, receiving God's mercy. Well, that's when he wanted God's mercy to end. What's going on here? Well, Jonah is riddled with self-righteousness. You know, at the, at the heart of Jonah's running away is this, he, that he, he thinks that the Ninevites do not deserve God's forgiveness as much, you know, God's favor as much as he does. See, this, this is what self-righteousness is. I am better than those people. I am more deserving of those people. Yes, God, forgive me in my sin, but don't forgive them in their sin. You might be able to... See, self-righteousness is such an insidious sickness. It's all hidden. It's all within. I can't look at any of you and go, self-righteousness, self-righteousness, self. I just, I can't do that. You might be able to do that when something's more obvious, right? If you're stealing from the workplace or you're having an affair or, you know, gossiping, whatever it is. But it's just harder to see a self-righteous attitude. It's just so tricky like that. It's tricky. It's something that's illustrated so well by the author Flannery O'Connor. She has this um, little short story uh, called Revelation, right? And this short story, it's set in the American South under Jim Crow. So there's this character in the story called Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin on the outside is this lovely lady you would like her probably if you met her. She's described as hardworking and respectful and church-going, and she makes all these little self-deprecating jokes. And she describes her mission in life as uh, for, for helping anyone and everyone, no matter who they are. 
It's lovely. You'd probably like her. She's this nice little Christian lady. But as you read the story, because you're the reader of the story, you get to see inside of her head, right? You get to see all of her thoughts and what's going on behind, you know, behind the surface on the outside, lovely Christian lady, so godly. But then you listen to her in a monologue and there is this repulsiveness to her. There's this self-righteousness about everything. I mean, she looks down on just about everyone. She looks down on poor people and black people and ugly people. And worst of all, in her mind, worst of all is those that she describes as white trash. All these little snide things that she says. It's just this grotesque character. And there's this moment there's this moment where Mrs. Turpin's ugly inner monologue of, of disgust at all these other people who are around her and who th- she th- believes deep down uh, are lesser than her comes out. And this is, this is how it goes in the story. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything... And a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. For one thing, somebody else could have got my husband clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. She cries aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. It struck almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. It could have been so different, Mrs. Turpin declares. I could have been like any of these other people, lesser people. I could have been like them, but of course, I'm worth God loving me. Self-righteousness. And Mrs. Turpin needs, what she needs is a book thrown in her face to begin to snap her out of this self-righteousness. And at the very end of this story, Mrs. Mrs. Turpin has a revelation, like she has a literal vision and she sees all these believers entering heaven and it goes like this. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven, and there were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black people in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs, And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces even their virtues were being burned away. What Mrs. Turpin in the story discovers is that none of us enter heaven 
with any of our supposed righteousness intact. What we believe is so impressive about us, what we think makes us superior to the bad people or to the Ninevites or even to Jonah, whatever that is, are like filthy rags before a holy God. We think that when we initially come to God, the things that we need to die to are the bad bits of ourselves and the sinful bits of ourselves. And what we miss is that what Jesus says we must die to are the very things about ourselves with which we are so impressed with. And if we don't believe that that is the case, then we are more like Mrs. Turpin and more like Jonah than we think. And I am aware, Grace City Church, that the conditions in which self-righteousness festers is in situations like this one. If we look around right now, you might observe, I mean, no one did, everyone's... (laughs) looking at me, but if you were to look around, that wasn't a rhetorical, like if you look around, you will see a bunch of very respectful people, like 110% of you work for the federal government and, <laughs> and, you, and you have pensions and you sing on key and you have a good haircut, we're all so respectable and it's quite easy to, to think uh, maybe not even consciously but at least I'm not like that person at least I'm not like those, those people over there or outside there. And we may be more concerned about respectability than God is. That's dangerous. We, we Ottawa are Christians, if we're, if we're not careful, could be as self-righteous as Jonah. And if we are as self-righteous as Jonah, then we will end up as miserable as Jonah. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is where self-righteousness leads. Jonah is so committed to being exceedingly displeased and to being angry that he says, well, if the Ninevites don't die, then I will. And that might seem so strange, so over the top. Perhaps an illustration will, will, will help. You know, many people over many years have noted the similarity between what Jonah says here and the character of Javert in the book or the musical or the film Les Miserables. Right? Javert, if you don't know the story, Javert is this policeman and he's this real law and order kind of guy. And he's after for the whole book or film or musical, he is after this runaway convict. Jean Valjean, he's after him. And, he, and, and Javert is totally sold on the fact that no man can be reformed. No man can be redeemed. No man can be a bad man and repent. That's just not how it goes. But Javert finally catches up with Jean, and he finds that Jean has, has repented. He has reformed. But he has. But no man can, but he, he has after, after meeting God, Jean is a, a, a changed man. But Javert, he is so committed to his belief that he is a good person and Jean is the wicked one 
that finding out that actually Jean has changed and that in many ways Jean is much better than he is, it devastates him. You know, tragically, this is the, the tragic bit of the story, Javert is so unable to accept this contradiction of his core beliefs that he kills himself. This is, this is Jonah's attitude here. His, his sense of where righteousness, where being good and, and worthwhile comes from, Jonah thinks that comes from within. You know, c- confronted with a grieved and repentant Nineveh and a, and a God who deals with them with such kindness, well, Jonah's whole view of the world and his place within it, exalted, so good, the prophet, has been shattered and he wants death. And this is where self-righteousness, this is what self-righteousness brings, brings death. And just because we're not going on an angry tirade like Jonah does here, it doesn't mean that we cannot share Jonah's heart attitude. You might say, well, I I wouldn't pray like Jonah. I wouldn't say, oh God, could you be less slow to anger? Could you not abound so much in steadfast love? For those of us here who are Christians, who, who believe in Jesus, we, we can totally do this. Let's not play around. We can do this. We just cloak it in this kind of acceptable, nice religiosity. We just go through the Christian motions and put off dealing with hearts that, toward God, are not right. There are plenty of ways that we can be like Jonah and be angry with God. And let's just... Let's just get to it by asking the question for us, who are our Ninevites? Who is it? Who are the people who you would not want to experience the joy of the Lord's salvation? Is it, is it family members? Is it previous friends who have deeply hurt us, who have done genuinely painful things to us? Would we accept that they have been forgiven by God or would we be angry with their newfound faith? Would we struggle if they came to church? For some of us, I say that and the faces and the names are the first thing that come into your mind. Ah, Those people, I don't want them to receive the salvation of God. Or is it the people in the world who are genuinely responsible for great evils. I mean, let me just throw some hypotheticals out at, at you and just see what your response is. Like, it, imagine if, for example, the surviving and now imprisoned uh, Boston bomber, what if he was to become a Christian, confess Jesus? What about if a, a, an ex-member of ISIS, maybe an, a leader, were to confess belief in Jesus? What would our reaction be to finding out that someone like that is now supposedly a brother or sister in Christ? What I'm asking, what what I'm getting at is this. Is our category for who can be washed clean of sin as wide and as welcoming as God's is? I mean, that's who we're dealing with. Historians unanimously agree. Nineveh is this city of 
terrorists on the same level of, of ISIS. That is, that is who we're dealing with in this story. If our understanding of how far grace goes doesn't go as far as God actually gives us, then then we end up like Jonah. And his self-righteousness comes to the surface as anger, and that anger leads to misery and death. Now, thankfully, God is surprisingly good, or maybe not surprisingly good, because that's all God has been to Jonah and to the Ninevites in this entire series. Well, we're going to find out next week, we're going to find out how does... How does Jonah, Jonah even experience God's grace in, in the midst of his, of his anger and his frustration and his fury? Well, God is going to be very good to him. But let's just start with what God says in the verses we've read here. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? He's saying, Jonah, you're angry. How's that going for you? What, what's that doing for you? Where, where is your anger, Jonah, getting you? It's a, it's a really practical question. It's not like Jonah, by being really angry, is actually changing anything. He's not changing God, right? He's, God's not going, well, Jonah, I, you know, I, I have been this abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger God, but now you've had your tantrum. I guess I, what I said to Moses doesn't actually stack up anymore. That's not what's going on here. For, for Jonah, it's more important that the nation that is enslaving his nation gets utterly destroyed rather than God getting to be God. His nation's priorities are more important than God doing the loving things he wants to do. I mean, the, the good news is, though, that God's not done with Jonah yet. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. I'm going to... See what happens next in the story next week. But God is going to be good to him despite his mess. The Ninevites didn't get killed and punished by God. But Jesus did. You see, the way we don't get punishment for our sin, and that sin, by the way, includes our own self-righteousness, is because Jesus on the cross paid for all of it himself. The only actually righteous man dies in your place and mine. In the beginning of Romans chapter 6 tells us that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What are we justified from? from our sin and from our self-righteousness. And what we're going to do now is we, we're going to, we are going to go to the tables and take communion. But before we do that, um, I just want to lead us in a prayer. And this is a, just a prayer of confession. If, if, if during my speaking, you've just been seeing your own self-righteousness, maybe you've been coming up against the ways you're like, Mrs. Turpin, or like Jonah. So I'll lead you in this prayer of confession. And again, I, uh, 
No one can, in the same way that I can't see whether you're self-righteous, can't see whether you're praying, but God can see. God can see it all. He knows where your heart is at. So let's, let's pray together, would we, and then we will go to the tables. Father, thank you that in Jonah we see a, a God who is ridiculously good, too good. Lord, there's no, there's no sin that Jesus' blood is not big enough to, to cover. There's no uh, self-righteousness in this room that is too grotesque for you to wash away. Lord, thank you that you are, by your Spirit, changing hearts and changing lives. And Lord, we are sorry. Lord, we are sorry for the ways that we prize, have prized respectability beyond love. Because you, you love wicked sinners, even when we think they're worse sinners than us. Lord, thank you that you're the one who takes sinners and you redeem them. So, Father, we we come and we bring our self-righteousness to you and we say, God, would you annihilate it? Would you take it away? Would you remove it from us as far as the east is from the west? Lord, would you deal with that sin? Would you take it? Would you put it (laughs) and nail it to the cross? And, Lord, that just because we've said that and we've meant that as we've prayed it just now, that means you've forgotten about that sin. And Lord, let us as well. Lord, let us move on and put self-righteousness behind us. Lord, thank you that it's not about our righteousness. It's about Jesus' righteousness. And we love him. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness and your mercy. Amen.